Uh, this morning we're continuing our series of looking at selected psalms in the first book of the Psalter, uh, Psalms 1 through 41, and this morning we'll be looking at Psalm 30. <clears throat> Excuse me. If I have a microphone here, it doesn't help if I back away. Um, so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and, and turn with me. We're looking at Psalm 30, and we do have it uh, printed here in the bulletin for you. We do believe this is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. Please read along with me. Psalm 30. A Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? Will the dust, if I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given it to us. Thank you that we can meet you there. God, we ask that your spirit who wrote these words would work in our hearts, that your spirit would speak to us this morning through me and the preached word, and that your spirit would open our ears to hear all that you have to say to us here and to change us this morning. God, we ask all this In the name of your Son, the living Word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Like some of you, I have a handful of friends who have been or are in some kind of drug or or alcohol recovery. And recently, a a friend of mine asked me to come to his anniversary meeting. I I wasn't able to make it, unfortunately, but he did make it into the introduction of my sermon. Um, but at these anniversary meetings, uh, what happens is uh, they, celeb- uh, they celebrate another year of being sober, and they're, they're given the opportunity to talk for a few minutes. Often, they'll recount some of what life was like when they uh, were not sober, some of the difficulties of trying to get sober and remain sober, and of course, they get to celebrate that they've been sober again uh, for another year. And as I thought about this, it it reminded me of a tradition that we have in the modern evangelical church, uh, what we call giving your testimony. I've seen 
testimonies when I went to youth camp in the summer. Uh, we, we gave testimonies. I gave my testimony in college and college ministries. And even last week, we had, uh, we had a new member here, uh, David Bishop, uh, give his testimony. And of course, the point of a testimony is not, is not to relive all your sins. It's not, it's not even to tell a really interesting or exciting story. The point of a testimony is to celebrate, as you reflect, to celebrate all that God has done. To celebrate the God that we worship. So my question uh, for you, uh, our question together this morning, is as you reflect, as you reflect on what God has done in your life, do you rejoice? Psalm 30 uh, is a psalm of praise, and, and, and in this psalm, King David is looking back on his life. We, we don't have very many details of exactly why he wrote the psalm, but we are given, we are given a bit of context uh, in the inscription. He says here, a song at the dedication of the temple. And there's a couple things I wanted to say about that. Uh, number one, it's complete coincidence that we're having a building dedication tonight, I promise. As per Redeemer policy manual, we do not plan these things. We cannot plan these things. Um, I was actually supposed to preach a different psalm, I think, but I, I got them out of order. Um, but also it says it's a dedication of the temple, and a, probably a better translation is a dedication of the house. Um, most English translations actually, actually render it uh, the dedication of the house. Uh, but the point of the inscription is not to tell us when he wrote it, but to tell us when the psalm was supposed to be used. Um, the point here, uh, regardless of different, different scholars and traditions go back and forth on whether it's supposed to be at, at the, for the dedication of the Jewish temple or for repeated use at the dedication of different house. The point is, when you get to dedicate something, it's an occasion to remember all of God's faithfulness. It's an occasion to say, this is not our building. This is not here because of the great things we've done. But it's a time to remember all that God has done for us and to continue to praise Him. So this morning, what I want us to see, what I think God wants us to see, is that a proper consideration of God's work in the life of believers always leads to praise. A proper, okay, a proper consideration of God's work in the lives of believers always leads to praise. And we'll consider three different things this morning. We're going to consider God's work of deliverance in your life, God's work of discipline, and lastly, God's work of transformation. First, we see God's work of deliverance or God's rescue. David describes it in very personal terms here in the first three verses. He says, Oh Lord, you've drawn me up. My foes don't rejoice over me. You've healed me. You've brought me up from Sheol. That word Sheol, if you remember from a few weeks ago, is not, is not hell, but it's the place of the dead or perhaps just the grave. And then he describes it. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. You see, he's, in, he's intensifying through the verses what it is that God has actually delivered from, or God, what God has delivered David from. He's intensifying toward what appears like a near-death experience as far as we know, from the biblical record, we don't have a, 
We don't have any record of David being so sick that he almost died. But I think what he's talking about here is that David, as he looks back on his life, just like all of you before you knew Jesus Christ, uh, like some of you here today who still aren't sure if you really trust Jesus Christ, or maybe you're quite sure, David, as he looks back, he knows that he was on the brink. David hung on the edge of a cliff uh, by his fingernails, and at the bottom was the judgment of God for all his sins. And his enemies, his foes here, Satan, sin, and death, were prying at his fingers, waiting to drag him down. And as David looks back, he praises the God who lifted him up when he knew he didn't have a rope. He was drawn up from a well. And we all know buckets don't bring themselves to the top of wells. He praises God for what he knows he had absolutely no part in. And as he looks back on it, there's nothing else he can do but praise God. He cannot add to this work. But he also considers it corporately, or he wants us to consider it corporately, rather. In verse 4, he says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. David expects that everyone will praise God for what God has done for him. Part of that is because of his office. When David was saved, he was the leader of his people. Everyone was saved. This points us, this points us ahead to look to Jesus, who was raised from the dead, and we know that because of his resurrection, we can have a resurrection. But there's also something, something more specific that David wants them to think of. You see, David knows that all believers know this deliverance. When we, can, when we look back and see David's deliverance, we're reminded of our own. This word for saints here is actually something like his hesed ones, hesedav. But you might, have, you might have heard that word hesed in a Sunday school class here or maybe in a sermon. This is God's unchanging and everlasting covenant love for his people. And here, David calls the people of God by the same name. They're the people who know his faithfulness. We've all come to Christ in different ways, but if we know him at all, we know him as a God of faithfulness, the God of all mercy. And this can only result... And what he calls here the praise of his holy name. And that name is repeated several times in this psalm. It's the name Lord with all capital letters. I'm sure you've heard that explained as well. In the Hebrew, that word is Yahweh. It's a very specific name. He's called many names in the Old Testament, but it's Yahweh over and over that describes his character. There's a lot of things that you could say about his name, but if we could shorten it down, Yahweh is the self-existing, condescending, covenant-making and keeping God. This is the God who reached down and drew David up. This is not the kind of deliverance that you can prepare yourself for. All you can do is cry out for this deliverance. And once delivered, through no merit of your own, and through Christ's blood alone, you must praise Him. But we're stubborn. So, this morning we'll not only consider His deliverance, but we also must look at God's work of discipline in our lives. 
the psalm appears to go a little bit back and forth, and it's not strictly chronological. What we have here is as David gives his own testimony, he's reflecting on different things that have happened in his life. And in verse 5, he moves towards a reflection of his own sin, and he wants us to see one sin in particular. You see, we actually, we actually do know a lot about David's various sins. We know that David was an adulterer. We know that David was a murderer. But here he wants us to look particularly at his sin of pride. He says in verse 6, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Uh, This is the exact same phrase that we saw in Psalm 15 and in Psalm 16. In Psalm 15, it was the one who keeps all God's commandments will never be moved. In 16, he'll never be moved because God is at his right hand. But here, David says he won't be moved because he looks around and sees that everything's okay. He sees that he's in a pretty good situation. Things seem to be going well, and he assumes they'll just always go that way, whether God intervenes or not. Pride here is a fundamental sin. Adultery and murder, it's easy, it's easy to see how those are sins. But what David wants us to see is that the sin of pride denies this very name that David's just been talking about. It denies that God is the one who condescends, that God is the one who reaches down. So God hides his face. In verse 7, it says, You hid your face, and I was dismayed. Now, this, this, may, be, this may be troubling to you. Perhaps, perhaps it should be. Perhaps it should be troubling to you. It was troubling to David. But what we need to see here is that this is not an outburst. This is not God flying off the handle. But this is God's fatherly discipline. We look back at verse 5, it says, His anger is but for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. You see, God's discipline is always in the context of a lifetime of favor. We read in Hebrews this morning that God disciplines us as sons. And it's actually a sign of your illegitimacy if you have no discipline from God in your life. God is not removing himself from David, but causing David to feel the pain of his own pride and what life would be like if God wasn't around. And we see there that the discipline actually fits the crime very well. David David sees very quickly that he does not stand alone, uh, that the father who disciplines him is the only hope that he has. And the father who disciplines his children is the only hope that you have. This word here uh, for dismayed could as well be translated that David was out of his mind. Just a minute ago, he would not be moved because he was in his ease. And now he's losing, he's losing his own mind. His self-sufficiency gives way to utter desperation which was God's very intent in the discipline. And we see again that God's discipline is for David's good. The reality that David's eyes are open to is that all our prosperity 
is from God. He says, God, you made my mountain stand strong. The same God that hid his face is the one who gave David everything that he had. And in reflection, David looks back and remembers how he submitted himself to God's discipline and he cried out. And the discipline actually gives David some real perspective. He looks back and sees that all his affliction is light and temporary. That weeping always gives way to joy. Weeping is real, but joy comes last. Joy is what endures. Joy is what lasts forever for the believer. And David places all his value on the eternal benefits. I had a really long list of applications in this section, but I'm I'm just going to mention a few here uh, this morning. It's very few Christians, very few Christians that would say out loud, uh, "I don't really, I don't really need God." Uh, That's not the kind of thing that we tell each other. But I want to ask you this morning: Are you praying? Are you crying out to the God who reaches down? True believers pray the most when they see their need of God. And it is never foolish to pray. It is never foolish to ask God to do the thing He does. He comes down. Do you have any sense of your desperation of what your life would be without God? Proverbs 30 tells us to beware of ease lest you be full, deny God, And say, who is the Lord? Friends, we are not immovable. Um, We are only immovable with God at our right hand. But some of you ask, well, why does X have to happen to me? Well, if you're one of God's children, you're being trained you see, we tend, to, we tend to reverse things and our anxiety and our worry in our mind prolongs the pain and our ingratitude, our ingratitude of living in a life surrounded by the God who gives us everything, our ingratitude for that makes his favor seem short and we totally flip it. But what David tells us is that his anger is momentary. His favor is lifetimes on lifetimes. So consider That God's kindness to you is his discipline. And remember that it's always in the context of a father who loves his sons like none of you love your sons. God is the true father who loves his children. His favor is forever and beyond this life. It extends into eternity. And if David, the man after God's own heart, needed to be disciplined, surely Surely we do too. So we not only praise God for his work of deliverance, but also for his continued work of discipline in our lives. And lastly, we see that the very fruit of God's discipline is his work of transformation. You see, God turns us into the worshipers that he's made us to be. 
Interestingly, we see this, we see this in an argument. Uh, in verse 9, David says, Well, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Challenging God. One pastor, one pastor said, Lord, the choir needs me. Um, of course, it's more weighty than that. What, what we see happening here is that David is not pleading for his safety. David is not asking for his circumstances to be changed. He's not asking for more money or better health or a good marriage. He's asking that God's name would be praised. The questions have completely been changed around. And this is highlighted or bookended by pleas of mercy in verse 8 and 10. Mercy from Yahweh. He's asking God to be his name. And God is very pleased with this kind of argument. How we see it in Exodus 32, when the people make a golden calf, their feet are barely dry from walking through the Red Sea, and they're already creating their own kinds of worship while Moses is up on the mountain. And God tells Moses that he is going to let his anger burn against them, that he is going to wipe them out and just start over. And Moses and his intercession for the people, doesn't say, but God, I really like these people. Or, God, they, they didn't really mean it. What Moses says is, Lord, what will the Egyptians say? You promised, Lord, and the Egyptians need to know, the world needs to know that you are the God who makes and keeps all his promises. Moses pleads with God to be Yahweh. So can you make this argument? Could you argue with God, Lord, if I wasn't here, there would be one less worshiper? By the way, if if your theology of God's sovereignty won't let you plead with God this way, uh, then you've you've missed the point somewhere along the way. God, The God who comes down loves for his people to cry out to him and to plead his name with them. So what we see is that God actually responds to the argument. His prayer is answered, and David is changed. This beautiful verse in verse 11. David says, You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth. And you've clothed me with gladness. You see, his mourning actually becomes dancing. And he doesn't mention anything about his circumstances changing, but he talks about the God who changes him. The God who changes us into the people that he made us to be. This word, my glory, in verse 12, uh, it's it's a confusing word to us. We don't, if we talk about glory, we tend to be talking about our own fame or something like that. But here what he means is my whole self and all that I'm worth and everything that is in me sings your praise because there's nothing else I can do. We're made to worship. We see here that it's actually the very purpose of his deliverance. It's the very purpose of God's discipline. 
in verse 12, so that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. It's the only thing that David can do when he assesses all that God has done. He cannot be silent. And he looks to eternity. He'll give thanks forever. The promised future of life with God informs all his praise now. We must learn to consider eternity. So when you reflect on God's work in your life, I'll ask you again, do you rejoice? Consider his deliverance. Consider that God brought you up from the pit when you had no hope. And if you know Christ, you know that there is no other way. God had to come down. Consider that the God who made you is the God who has reached down to save you. Consider his discipline. The the fatherly chastening is what keeps you close to him. God's hand in your life is always at work, causing you to remember him, causing you to stay near. And lastly, consider his transforming love. It's partial in this life, fully in the life to come. The God who saves us changes us and transforms us into beings that will live forever, always praising His name. The God who spoke the world into existence, who comes down and shows mercy to thousands, desires your praise. So let's remember why we're here when we sing to Him. We're not here to walk through some steps but we're here to give God his due. We're here to sing with all that we have. Take opportunities to reflect on who God is and what he's done for you. Rehearse these things. Read his word. Pray to him. And when you eat, and when you drink, or when you rake the leaves, do all to the glory of God.